Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and hosted by me, Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services and Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator. Our community is filled with diverse stories and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia. And we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each one of us has had one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes, that's it. So we research separately and then come back together to discuss where our one hour in the past has taken us. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back to the archives to catch other episodes of our historical adventures on topics like hats, soda water, Thanksgiving, telephones, and stuffed animals. (laughs) On this episode of One Hour in the Past, we'll be discussing our research into maps and mapping. Let's get right to it and head down the rabbit hole. Enjoy the episode. As our regular listeners know, we like to start off each discussion with a definition of what we're talking about. Today's topic, of course, is maps and mapping. There are two versions of this definition. Uh, The first, I'll start with the noun. Um, uh, A map is a diagrammatic, diagram, yeah, diagrammatic. Diagrammatic. Jeez, Louise. A map is a diagrammatic representation of an area of land or sea showing physical features cities, roads, etc. There's also a specific biological use for the word map, a representation of the sequence of genes on a chromosome or of bases in a DNA or RNA molecule, which I have no idea what that means. In computer science, a memory map is a structure of data which usually resides in memory itself. That indicates how memory is laid out. The term memory map can have different meanings in different contexts. There's also a verb, Uh, map and uh, it means to represent an area on a map or make a map of. The word map comes from the combination of two Latin words, mundi, which means world, and mappa, which I assume hopefully I'm pronouncing that part correctly, which means sheet. It was combined in the medieval period to be mappa mundi, literally sheet of the world, And then in the early 16th century, it was shortened to create map in English. Pretty cool. (laughs) So. (laughs) It's one of our more complicated definitions. That's probably the most complicated (laughs) definition we have ever given, especially of a three-letter word. That's pretty cool. Um, Kathleen, why don't you give us a brief research summary where you started and where you ended up? Sure. Uh, So I was really interested in a very specific part of mapping history Uh, and so my history pretty much took all of the same, it was in all in the same place pretty much. Um, But I can tell you that I started in the Treaty of Paris in 1763 with an organization called the Board of Trade, um, which their long-term name is the Lords Commissioners of Trades and Plantations. 
So that was the first thing I looked at. And then the last thing I had was um, the uh, Indigenous map of North America, the more yeah. recent version of the Indigenous map of North America and the power of the Indigenous map of North America. That is really cool. I can't wait to hear that discussion. I started, and this is probably no surprise to you, I started with the fire insurance plans. <laughs> of course, of course you would bring those in. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go local at all this time, so I'm glad that you did. Oh, I went ultra, I went ultra local. I don't think I can get more local than I've done. Yeah, I, it's no surprise to anyone that I started with the fire insurance plans. I wanted to start from a place of comfort, and since I use them so often, it felt just, it felt natural. And then I ended up my research. I went over by three minutes. I apologize. Basically at Niagara and the Lake. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's kind of, I didn't think I would end up there, but I did. So the, yeah, anyway, Niagara and the Lake. <laughs> awesome. Well, before we get into our research, let's stop for a quick commercial break. Hi, everyone. It's Adrian here at the museum. We are so excited to welcome you back to the Virtual Museum Lecture Series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center this fall. We had an incredibly fun and successful spring series featuring stories of horses, shipyards, memorials, canal builders, and freedom seekers. Now we're back after a little summer break with new and exciting historical adventures to fill your Tuesday evenings. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for a great lineup of local history lectures you can enjoy from the comfort of your home. September is all about our annual guided spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. We'll have historian Adam Montgomery kick off the series on September 15th with a lecture about cemeteries and monuments with a focus on Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Then I'll be here on September 29th with a special behind the scenes look at our virtual presentation of the annual tours through Victoria Lawn featuring stories and memories from the cast and crew of our guided spirit walks. October is just as exciting and will feature another special guest, Natasha Henry, historian and president of the Ontario Black History Society. Natasha will be giving a talk on the history of Ontario's racially segregated schools on October 13th. On October 27th, I'll be back to discuss the somewhat lost and mostly forgotten history of the Third Welland Canal. On November 10th, we'll present our emotional and touching First World War series, Stories from the Front, with stories from our collection about experiences at home and at the front from St. Catharines. On November 24th, I'll be joined by our public programmer, Sarah Nixon, to discuss a report commissioned by the United States Congress Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, written by Samuel Gridley Howe in 1863 on the condition of freedom seekers in Canada local interviews with both freedom seekers and recognizable names of the city's established businessmen opens up new histories we aren't used to hearing. And finally, on December 8th, our curator Kathleen Powell will present a talk on local fashion and our new exhibit, Marking Time, which features important moments of life and the textiles that go with them. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for an exciting virtual museum lecture series. Register by donation by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or by emailing the museum at museum at stcatherines.ca. All right, Kathy, let's get into your research. Sure. Okay. So I'm really interested, and I have been for a while, so this podcast kind of fits within something that I had a general interest in before. So I guess the one hour in the past of, you know, searching something you didn't know anything about is, I, I knew a little bit about this already and I was just really interested in this part of the, the topic. Really interested in the um, ability of maps to uh, forward imperial agendas. Mm. And so really that is kind of where my research was and almost all of the research that I did came from uh, a book called The New Map of Empire. I don't know if you can see that. Adrian and I are on Zoom, so uh, I'm showing this to him via Zoom. Um, <laughs> well, I'll link to that book in the footnotes. <laughs> it's a great book. It's fairly recent. It's by S. Max Adelson. Um, and it's called The New Map of Empire, How Britain Imagined America Before Independence. I knew of this book. <laughs> I've, I've read it before. I read the whole book, but that was a while ago now. So obviously I didn't 
have it all right off the top of my head, but uh, um, I knew of this book in some other research I was doing related to map making in, um, in the East Coast prior to um, Confederation, basically prior to uh, really right at the end of the Seven Years' War, so in 1763. So, uh, so my research started there at the Treaty of Paris in 1763, and this organization called the Board of Trade, which I find incredibly fascinating, uh, is this kind of a, almost like a, a secret, secret but not so secret group of really powerful people that were pulled together uh, to put together a system to manage um, North, British North America, essentially. It was a British organization. Um, and they put forward a plan for defense, occupation, development, um, and included colonization of British North America at the time. So we have to remember that British North America at the time included the United States, what is currently the United States, as well as what is currently Canada in their mind, but really like the eastern coast of all of that. And part of the Board of Trades way of functioning and what they felt was really super important was this idea that in order to do all this, they needed to map it. And so they sent, uh, sent out um, surveyors to mark boundaries and to lay out fortifications, even though they didn't exist yet, they sent people out there to lay them out, put boundaries together, chart coastlines, which was really, really important. A lot of those early maps are not really maps of land, they're maps of water, so that you knew where you could take your ships, because that was pretty much the way that you were traveling around. They felt that this was really their way to be able to gain power in North America. So, you know, the British and the French are really the ones that are kind of really fighting for power in North America at the time. And so this Board of Trade, who are the British, really felt that they needed this extra bit, you know, just that little bit of extra that's going to put give them the upper hand and mapping was their way to do that. They were start, they did a lot of things at the start of this because they were working to determine what was going to be called at the time it was called the Indian boundary line. So the king at the end of the the, uh, the war said that they were going to create this big line across the entire continent and European peoples would not be allowed to um, to settle past this line and all the land on the other side of that would belong to the indigenous people. And that was kind of part of the mandate of the Board of Trade was to create what this, where this boundary line was going to lie. Uh, and they couldn't really do that without half decent maps. They still had really crummy maps at the time. Even when they created the boundary line, they had crummy maps. Because it's really difficult, there's lots of mountains and, you know, it's totally un uncharted territory essentially and so uh, getting someone in there to map it accurately was very difficult so their boundary line was already poorly designed uh, from the start because they didn't really have good maps but they had better maps than what they had had before they thought that being able to map that would also help them to regulate commerce and to actually regulate settlement. So this is all about regulation. The British Board of Trade, even though it was just a small group of people, had an incredible amount of power because they were the ones creating this new vision of what they thought the empire should look like when they went to North America. How this is important in my mind is that this just continued all the way through to, you could arguably make the argument that this continues today that this vision for what empire should look like, a European created vision of empire, uh, has continued to shape how governments regulate people and places even now. Uh, so you, even though this was like, you know, 300 years ago nearly, it's 250 years ago, it's still uh, something that, uh, that impacts our lives today. Yeah, it made me think about that recent court decision in Oklahoma where they decided that, I don't know, like a ton of three-fifths of Oklahoma or something like that are technically unceded indigenous land and reserve land or something like that. It was Maybe it was reserve land. It was a huge court case. And then that made me think of, of that, maybe a lot of the complications from the early days of Oklahoma. Because Oklahoma is west of that line, isn't it? Or am I wrong? Is it just uh, on the yeah. line? No, I think it's west of the original one. Right. And so maybe that was one of the challenges that they now have to deal with is that the, they didn't right. do it 
properly or whatever. Yeah, and I think as an aside to that, like to what I did for research, but aside to that based on what we're talking about right now is that the, the line that they created for this boundary line is just a line, yeah. right? It's a line on a piece of paper. And so of course, you know, the person that lives on the line steps over the line and they're like, well, stepped over the line and nothing happened over here <laughs> so, you know yeah. it's only as good as the the um ability to regulate that thing that you've created on the map right so you could let the the board of trade were in london so how much could they do to enforce what was happening on the land the actual land in north america uh, they're hoping that they're going to be able to do this but it's just a piece of paper with lines on it, essentially. Um, but having the map was better than not having the map and understanding the, um, the place was better than not. So like we mentioned that the, uh, this vision of empire was that the lands in North America could be secured by settling British people on those lands and then supporting this transatlantic trade. And the transatlantic trade is like that three point trade system that has Europe, the West Indies and North America kind of in a triangle that uh, was this trade empire um, that already existed, but was more established between the West Indies and Europe at the time and then became part, the North America kind of became part of that using imperial control of land distribution to control who gets to colonize those bits of land. So then you're shaping how those territories look overall. And that was the whole, whole Board of Trade's vision for how the empire should work. Uh, the French had a similar kind of thing, but it wasn't exactly the board. It wasn't the Board of Trade, but they had a similar kind of notion that uh, they should be able to control uh, land by settling people on those bits of land. Uh, but the Board of Trade did a great job of it with maps, essentially. Um, and they had already seen how they thought the Brit that the British North America could fit within this larger trade map that connected uh, uh, the West Indies and Europe together. So I want to quote from the uh, this book, and it said that the, and this is based on what the crown told why they created the board of trade in the first place. The crown meaning the king, uh, the crown's charge to the board was to design a plan for dividing and developing new territories, and it provided a golden opportunity to impose order on a disordered colonial world. So this was the the feel at the time. So imagine. <laughs> I mean, now looking at it in hindsight, imagine that all of these indigenous people that already lived in British North America, well, in what they considered, they lived on this piece of land, not British North America, but lived on this piece of land, saying, someone saying, this is just a disordered piece of land. Well, there was all kinds of governing structures already existing here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, nations that had a, a, a way of working in a system and, um, it was just an assumption by the British that uh, they were doing something awesome by putting order on a disordered world. So, But where this all goes to is this idea that I really find interesting is the idea that maps are created with by people with agendas and how they want to represent the world and that maps are not dispassionate. They don't just uh, provide uh, information for you. They were created with somebody who had some rationale in mind and maps are still like that. They're still created the same way. The fire insurance maps are a great example of that, Adrian. I'm sure we're going to get to that, but great example of that because they were created specifically for fire insurance companies. And so they had specific information that those companies needed for them to be able to do their work. So even, you know, 200 years after the original maps of North America were created, fire insurance maps are created for a very specific purpose and only have certain information. And that's what those original maps were, were made. Um, so I find that really interesting from a perspective of someone who's really interested in how empire influences things that we do, essentially, uh, and how much power map makers have. So imagine the power of a map maker to shape the images and the ideas of who has the right to different parts of geography um, and geographic space just by putting it on a map, essentially, uh, and how those things should be used, who should live there, like what kind of people should live in those places. Um, oh, yeah, and I, I actually posted noted a spot in the book that I wanted to uh, 
to, to mention. Um, so this book, this says, what these map maps mean depends on what we think they are. Among other things, these maps were the source materials from which commercial map makers engraved images for publication and broad public consumption. They were a form of discourse composed to persuade viewers of an ideological message, especially about claims of sovereignty. They established roots and relationships across space as they recorded the findings of organized journeys of conquest, exploration, and survey. And they marked abstract boundaries across visible landscapes. They terrified and tantalized, making fears and aspirations palpable by giving them geographic form. They were technical documents produced by the state to gather instrumental knowledge of places in which it had a material interest, particularly regarding defense and land ownership, and they served as patronage performances drafted by their makers to demonstrate their expert knowledge of place in hopes of preferment. So, the, I found the interesting part of this is things like uh, creating arbitrary boundaries on a piece of on a basically a, a, a line on a piece of paper and then this idea of terrifying or not terrifying and using who could live there so one great example of that is the idea of a map being in a specific language so if you create a map and you know that there are already french settlements and english settlements and indigenous settlements in that area but on the map everything you put on there is English and you've renamed all the villages that are French to English and you've renamed all the indigenous villages to English. And so say someone living in London at the time sees this map in a window and says, oh, hey, this looks cool. Maybe I want to move here because um, all these people speak English and you get there and, you know, 80% of the population speaks French because that's the people that were already there. And then the other, you know, 15% are indigenous people. And then you've got 5% English. <laughs> but the map maker has created this um, kind of propaganda about what that place could potentially look like. Uh, and then the other thing that I thought about with this paragraph is the idea of terrifying you. And the best example of that is when you go and you look at old maps and there are spots on the ocean that said there be whales here or there be dragons here, uh, which is really like, a you know, this is the way to put fear into somebody is the ocean is this unknowable place with giant sea monsters in it, um, which obviously isn't, isn't the truth. But anyway, I thought that was a great quote. Um, Anyway, I will continue. <laughs> that's great. So really what this was all about was a projection of power, and that's what empire is all about. Uh, so the maps enabled uh, the British to be able to see a distant land in high resolution. So they knew the land was there, but the map actually allowed them to see what was on the ground, kind of like the difference between knowing something is there and then taking a photo of it. So, um, uh, and this was after the Seven Years' War. And then, so this allowed different empires to kind of embolden them to take command of different territories. Uh, and maps did the same for everybody. Like this book is specifically, a lot of it's about British, but it did a lot uh, for all. Any colonial power it, you, has used maps in some way to uh, help to project its power um, and its force outwards on those places because they aren't there to be able to do that. Um, and so, you know, the military, military use of maps was incredibly important at that time because most of the time when you're projecting your power, you need the military to be able to, uh, to help you do that. And the Board of Trade's power came from the fact that they had all the information. They were the ones bankrolling the creation of all of these maps and they created thousands and thousands of maps of early North America. Uh, and basically anyone who wanted to use these maps had to come to the Board of Trade. So they actually had a lot of power on how uh, things work. And of course we all know that uh, knowledge is power. And so um, while they were a pretty small organization and from a political standpoint, they would they're relatively small. They had a lot of power when it came to how the empire projected itself across the uh, the ocean. And then I wanted to go back a little bit to figure out how long the Board of Trade had been around. It wasn't for very much, very long ahead of the end of the um, Seven Years' War. So they had really been only around since, officially since 1796, but there was kind of an early, or sorry, 1696, uh, but there was kind of an earlier 
grouping that was similar in the 1660s. So they had only really been around for about 15 years before the end of the French and Indian or Seven Years War, depending on whichever one you decide to call it. Um, and their job was really to take in information about North America and to synth synthesize it uh, into new general representations uh, and ways on which to base policies for regulation. So using the information in a map to create a regulation in that space. So that could include uh, how you're going to uh, survey the space for, uh, for settlers, uh, whether or not you have to worry about other people that already live there um, and what landforms could potentially be in your way. Or if there's natural resources that you want to take advantage of, you might decide you want to survey a piece of land in a different way uh, than you might have originally. So, um, And their job was to pull it all together, essentially, which I've already pretty much talked about. Um, and. They also had the original job, which I thought was interesting, but makes total sense. Their original job was to pull all of this information together to estimate a value of the continent for colonization. So almost like a monetary value of whether it's worth it to send people over there. Um, and so I thought that was really neat. Like, how could you even take that in as a job? Like, you know, you got your strategic plan and you're like, okay, here's your strategic plan. Create a value for North America. <laughs> what how are you even gonna start you don't you've never been there you don't know what it looks yeah. like how do you start that and so it must have been a huge task for the uh, uh the people who were part of the board of trade but i think a lot of them also had some idea that maybe they can make some money out of this for themselves by uh um speculation on colonization <laughs> And then, of course, um, this led me a little bit, and I was getting right to the end, so I had to quickly whip through this. Uh, it led me to um, how this was related to treaty making with the indigenous people after the war. Um, and the idea that a lot of treaty making, not just with indigenous people, but with other nations as well, so the British and the French, um, and um, I'm sure to an extent the British and the Spanish down in the southern part of North America, uh, that having better maps helped you to have an upper hand when you were creating treaties. Uh, and then that led me to the idea or to the thought that uh, what if you were a population that doesn't use maps, like indigenous people don't use the same kind of maps. Uh, I know there aren't very many indigenous maps, early indigenous maps of any parts of Canada, uh, because they just didn't navigate the land that way. And they didn't write it down on a, a piece of whatever to uh, to be able to create something for the next person to be able to navigate that space. And so um, I think that having a piece of paper with a, a landform on it gave an upper hand to uh, one or one group over another in those negotiations. And then that is where it led me to the uh, indigenous map of North America, uh, which you can actually find. And I don't know if it's the, it's definitely not the only one, but one of them you could find at native-land.ca, um, this indigenous map of North America. And it's actually an indigenous map of the world. It's not even just North America that shows indigenous nations on current maps of North America and uh, I think it's really interesting and provides a lot of power to indigenous nations to to have that information on a map and to show people what that looked like. Most people only had a general idea in their head about where indigenous nations were in our country and it's probably based on the propaganda of earlier maps <laughs> because most of those early european maps didn't even show indigenous villages on the map so as far as they were concerned if you looked at that map it didn't even exist and then you go to put your farm someplace and you're right in the middle of someone's land already um, so i think that uh, it's really great that this new indigenous map of North America exists and that people can have a look at the lay of the land uh, prior to European mapping taking over uh, kind of the power of mapping of our uh, of our continent. I really anyway, like I ended up. <laughs> I really like looking at that that indigenous map because it kind of shows some of the challenges of putting colonial lines over top of existing communities. Well if you think about every map of the world that you look at or that we do anyway here in North America, our map of the world usually has the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of it, with yes. North America on the one side and Europe and then um, uh, 
you know, the other part of the continents in Australia is usually on the bottom on the right hand side of your map. Um, but in actual fact, like what made us decide that that was the center of the map. And a lot of it had to do with British, this British center of the world colonialism, right? Like you could, could have put the Pacific Ocean in the center and think about what the map would look like then uh, and how how the continents would look differently and how they would be centered differently in the world. And I mean, it seems like a small thing to us to look at that now, but um, you know, maybe 200 years ago, that was a pretty big deal to put yourself at the center of the, essentially the center of the known world, right? And, I, and to the, <laughs> the impact of having the, uh, the West, sort of the rich Western parts of the world at the top of the map, uh, being much bigger than, and you see this a lot all over the place, but you see like North America isn't actually as big as it is compared to Africa and what that does socially and economically to uh, making people, because bigger is better, right? And more important. Yeah, so yeah. Making people think like that. <laughs> there is a wonderful, uh, fun clip about that issue from the West Wing, which I will put in the footnotes, but it gets shared a lot about how, about that issue and they do a really good job of explaining that. So I'm just gonna write that down. <laughs> it's amazing, like we don't, I think we, we just in modern day assume that maps are dispassionate and that yeah. a map is just a map that doesn't try to manipulate information, but that's totally not true. And that's not true of really anything. Um, it's almost impossible to remove bias from anything because someone has to have created the map in the first place. And no matter how much you think you can remove your bias, you never can uh, completely 100%. And so um, it's really being critical about how you look at documents in general, but maps should be included as part of that. They don't, they don't represent always reality. And then I know I came across some maps in some research I was doing um, that there were things on the map that never actually existed uh, because they were, it was really a map of uh, a proposed kind of settlements and how things should, could be or would be, but it doesn't say that on the map. Like you have to, you have to look at it critically and look at other maps and see that that never really did exist. So, you know, someone looking at that as a historian and only looking at one map might say, oh, well, there was a settlement here. So we have prior examples that we had people settled here um, and using that as evidence of something that never really existed because it was just someone's fanciful idea of what could could exist if money was put into this thing, right? Um, so then it also goes to the idea of making sure your map is accurate to what it represents. Like, you know, in the legend, making sure it says this is only a representation of something that hasn't happened yet, but could you know um so i think there is some challenges with historic maps in that way and probably modern maps as well but anyway there you go my critical eye <laughs> the challenges and bias with mapping is a really great takeaway from this segment of our podcast uh as we take a quick break to uh have a message about some of our upcoming programs Collecting, researching, and preserving your family history is challenging work. As museum professionals, we get it. What do you do with those old photographs, your mother's silverware, or your wedding gown? How do you record the stories that have been in your family forever before it's too late? The St. Catharines Museum wants to help you with these questions. We're offering a two-day virtual workshop to help you figure out how to organize and care for the information and materials in your own family collections. Join us remotely on Saturdays, October 24th and November 7th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. From a screen and into the comfort of your home, St. Catharines Museum staff will guide you through how to organize and keep track of your family records and photographs, how to care for and store family heirlooms and special collectibles, and how to write and record your family story. Registration is $50 per person and spots are limited. Register today by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or reach out by email, museum at stcatherines.ca. All right, so we've come back from break, from a little message there. We've come back from a little message. So Adrian, tell me our... now where your research went. You mm -hmm. stuck with modern day a little more than, uh, well, more recent modern day. Than... I was super local. 
yeah. is what I oh, went right. for. Yeah. Yep. So I began my research by looking into the history of my favorite kind of map, as everyone knows, the fire insurance plan. But I just want to pause here because I, when I started thinking about the fire insurance plan, I was thinking about how historians are generally interested in maps that are out of date. And I don't really know other map using occupations like navigators and geographers that would be using historical maps on a regular basis. Well, no, because you don't want to crash into something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this mountain isn't on my map. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or how so, many stories have we heard online about people who were using their GPS to navigate places and ended up like in the middle of a lake or something? And yeah. be only because it hadn't, they had, they're not using the most up-to-date version. It right. hadn't been uploaded. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that historians are the ones who use historical maps all the time and, and like in a way prefer historical maps. Like does anyone, I think my, what I'm getting at is does anyone else find value in something that's out of date? Right. Yeah, yeah. No, so we're, we're weird <laughs> because no one else seems to find value in something that's out of date. So that's maybe kind geographers, of a, maybe geographers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In a comparative way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one set of historical maps that I frequently reference here at the museum in my daily work is the fire insurance plans, fire insurance plans or FIPS for short are urban city maps initially created for fire insurance or sorry for insurance companies to provide them with information about building composition and to assess fire risk and assist in assigning insurance rates. So really these were used by adjusters to sort of look at what the building was made out of and who occupies the building before you figured out what rate you were going to pay for your insurance. These plans provide details on building construction and usage, as I mentioned, to help give a static impression of streetscapes, neighborhoods, and business or commercial regions. They come uh, in two standard sizes in Canada, if you, did, if you knew this. Uh, we have large, 54 centimeters by 64 centimeters, which is big, that's over a meter square, and small, 30 by 33 centimeters. I don't think we have many small size maps, uh, small size FIPS in our collection. I, don't, I haven't come across small size FIPS. We may have some. We do have a bunch of large sized FIPS a set from 1913 updated to 1924 and the set from the 1940s. Those are really interesting to look, uh, look at together and simultaneously. And if we want to get right down into the minutia of the fire insurance plans, it's interesting to see some sometimes different handwriting. Since the maps were done by hand, you can see a couple different features. One, different handwriting. Uh, two, since the maps get updated on a regular basis, because you don't want to have to draw a new map every year. So you kind of just take a piece of similarly colored paper. Hopefully you still have the same colors from last time you did it and paste it on. That's what uh, I love so, about fire insurance maps. Yeah, you get pieces of papers glued onto them. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's like, is that a new building or did that building change? And so you get all that like pasting. And then sometimes you get different handwriting if it's a new person doing the map. Uh, but you really have to know the map in a sort of detailed <laughs> way to recognize, oh, that's somebody else's handwriting. And it's interesting to look at the, the difference between the early map from 1913 and the later map from 1940, because it's the 1940 map is much cleaner. It's, uh, it seems like the artists who were doing the maps, or even if it was the adjusters, were more practiced, or maybe they were professionally trained to do those maps rather than the earlier mappers who were kind of, I don't know. Yeah, sloppy, <laughs> yeah maybe sloppy is the right word, yeah. Anyway, the maps themselves are very colorful. I'll post I'll post a, a, one of our maps in the footnotes so you can take a look at it. And the adjusters would use different colors to represent those different building materials. So usually it's red or pink for brick, yellow for wood, and blue for steel or metal or concrete, sometimes gray as well. So when you're looking at an older commercial neighborhood, like let's say St. Paul Street, you get lots of pink. And when you're looking at, you know, an early to mid-century neighborhood like Russell Avenue, you get lots of yellow because most of the buildings are houses and made out of wood. So it's kind of interesting. The St. Catharines map, it's very, very pink downtown. And then it sort of like fans out with yellow. And uh, so you can like just instantly visually look at, oh, there's there's clearly the commercial hub of our of our city. Our friends at Brock University also have a few sets, including one from 1923. 
that I will also post in the footnotes because it's digitized. So you can go on and it's actually overlaid as well on a regular map. So you can actually go and explore a little bit more in more in depth. That one's really cool. The 1923 one is really cool because it shows how the Canadian Electric Railway line used to run through my neighborhood <laughs> after crossing 12 Mile Creek. And it's a really interesting part of my neighborhood because obviously the the rail, the street railway, it no longer runs through that that neighborhood, but the houses that were there before, it stopped are there, and then the houses that are there now that were basically built on top of the line, are in a really weird uh, streetscape, and it's just like, why is that house all the way over there, and why is that? Why is that house on that angle when every other house is straight? These houses are almost like at a forty-five degree angle, and uh, so when I, I first saw that, it really just kind of opened my eyes about, you know, that specific little streetscape problem, basically. So in that way, the fire insurance plans have a way of revealing the past. And again, when I like took a look at that section, the neighborhood suddenly just made sense. A little historical context opened up the history of my neighborhood, which is really cool. And if you live in an older neighborhood, that's important to sort of understanding your sense of place. Uh, newer neighborhoods, unfortunately, don't have that kind of history because they're new. <laughs> you can definitely see that when you're in a newer neighborhood that still has a couple of old houses in it. The yes. houses that are older are on weirder shape, like unusually shaped lots potentially, whereas newer houses are always on fairly square or rectangular, you know, shaped lots. And you, you're like, well, this is strange. Like, look at how this neighborhood looks right now. And it's because of that original building that created, you know, how the rest of the lots ended up laying out. So that's always fun to look at when you look like I would imagine if you look at the 1921 versus the 1941, you would see a lot of that because the really 40s, they were starting to build, especially with some of that wartime housing, they were starting to build some of the um, lots on very regulated sized lots, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's interesting because our development is, uh, especially the north end of St. Catharines is very much based like how far away you get from downtown. So there's like a chronological development that goes along with the geographical development, especially in the Grantham neighborhood, sort of things like fan out. So yeah, I was going to say also the uh, good example of that is like when you have a new subdivision in like a farm field, but like the original farm is still there. You run into that kind of some in some places in in St. Catharines, but like the corner concession, like the main road has still has the farm and the farmhouse, but then you look beyond and it's all subdivision because yeah. that, that person hasn't sold yet or, or whatever. Back to my neighborhood uh, and the one that's next door, the Fitzgerald neighborhood, they're kind of strange. Uh, it's half residential and half former industrial land. I live near the old GM plant, uh, but also the Russell Avenue Community Center was also the, uh, the main office for English Electric. And so land use is really strange Uh, chronologically, if that makes sense. And it's always neat to see how the any development has impacted the neighborhood on the ground. So if you look around your own neighborhood, there might be mixed use or industrial or commercial development that had sort of impacted and now it's changed. On the west half of Lake Street, so if you're going north, the left half, the street layout follows the sort of the southwest to northeast flow of all the concessions in St. Catharines. Um, so they go, they kind of go on the angle that way. Uh, I, sorry, and they follow those main east-west roads, Welland, Carlton, Scott, and Linwell, and Lakeshore. But then on the right-hand side of Lake, or the east side of Lake, all the streets flow straight in relation to downtown. <laughs> so you get into, a, a tr- the tricky one you get into is um, Elizabeth Street, where Welland is going like this, but then Elizabeth Street kind of comes like this, and then this, and like that neighborhood keeps going up well. And so some of those streets get really short or really long, depending on where you are. Uh, and it's almost like they tried to correct that slanted grid with a regular grid. Probably somebody did try to correct right? it. I think it's like, it's like <laughs> Lake runs, Lake runs pretty in relation to the Lake Ontario, Lake street runs pretty much perpendicular to Lake Ontario. So it's like they tried to maybe fix some of that, uh, the challenges that they had with the surveying. So that led me to the surveying. So why did St. Catharines, why did the St. Catharines grid system get so skewed? 
So I went it's to the- It's we're talking about this. People are gonna love this part. Yeah, I went to the Big Red Book, St. Catharines, Canada's Canal City for answers. Um, there are about six or seven copies of that book at the public library. So if you are interested in getting it uh, for a quick look, you can uh, take it out yourself now, now that the library is reopened. Uh, survey, surveys were carried out here in Niagara between 1787 and 1789. Grantham Township, which was the original land grant sort of unit at the time, was surveyed somewhat accidentally, kind of. Uh, the surveyors had been following the lakeshore and laying out concessions parallel to the lakeshore. But since the lakeshore deviates northeast, towards the Niagara River here in Grantham Township or in St. Catharines, it created a bit of an angle between the straight lines that were created for Louth Township on the west of us and Niagara Township on the east of us. It's a pretty common problem across all the Great Lakes actually since that's basically how surveyors used their reference start points. So you'd start at the lake and kind of go parallel. So if the, <laughs> depending on what, it just so happens that this piece of land sort of starts a bit further south. And then when you go east, it goes a bit further north based on the lakeshore. So God that's- forbid they give anyone a little bit of an extra wedge of land on their land allotment, right? Like they exactly. could have made it straight, but no, that little triangle of land, someone was gonna get more. Don't exactly. Want to uh, later on, though, there is a name for that specific triangle of land, so we'll get to, we'll get there because that's sometimes it's unavoidable. Yeah, they didn't want to mess things up, but that <laughs> two hundred years later, that has some impacts, especially when we're looking at urban development, urban problems like traffic flow patterns and pedestrian issues, yeah. uh, things like second or third generation land uses for uh, post-industrial sites. It's all it has huge impacts uh, in terms of how the city is dealing with land usage right now. Common problem though across the Great Lakes because the Great Lakes aren't just square boxes. By the 20th century when cars and, and again huge, huge amounts of residential development replaced horses and farms, it was far too late to change and update the city's urban plan. The addition of the canals and then the QW only things only made things more complicated, especially because the QW cuts across the city almost opposite to what those concessions are doing. So you get like this sort of X pattern that really just slices uh, some of those roads and makes makes an intersection like Geneva and North Service Road at the Fairview Mall super complicated. <laughs> so my next question was, how do you survey in 1787? The answer is of course, chains. We don't use chains anymore, but I've known this for a long time, actually. My early interpretation days were up on the Canadian Shield. And if you think hey, they had a rough time surveying the escarpment here in Niagara, imagine trying to survey through rock outcrops and swamps um, when you couldn't even see the end of the chain because there might have been you know, a hill or you, you, whatever in the way. So those poor surveyors uh, have some pretty rough stories when they're basically out in the bush living forever and totally not glamorous job uh, oh, to have. Super dangerous. Yeah, uh, super dangerous and brutal. Day. Yeah. 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 I kind of, all of those surveyors and map makers, early map makers and surveyors, they're mostly the same people, but uh, holy smokes, the, the things that they had to do uh, was crazy and, and that they were just willing to do it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but we often like talk about uh, cartographers and surveyors in a way that kind of like elevates them maybe because they're just they they are like the mechanics of the empire like of em empire and colonialism and that kind yeah. of thing but yeah no their job was dirty and hard and terrible so i wouldn't ever want to be a surveyor and 1787 essentially you're camping out in a strange land on a terrain that you maybe don't know anything about at all and you have to basically bushwhack through it. Yeah. Surveyors used these chains, which were 66 feet long, and the common square grid layout known as a 1,000 acre sectional system uh, used adjacent parallel roads uh, that were 100 chains or 1.25 miles apart. These square lots were arranged as 10 100 acre lots. Um, sometimes they were five 200 acre lots, depending, um, depending, but usually 10 100 acre lots, each that were 20 chains by 50 chains. So that two consecutive concession roads had two consecutive side roads 
enclosed in a square of 1,000 acres. So just imagine a big square with a line down the center and then lines like this. And I'll post a picture of a traditional 1,000 acre sectional system in the footnotes so that you can <laughs> see what I'm talking about. Of all the topics, this is probably the most visual topic that we're yeah, talking about. <laughs> Anyway, that's basically what we have in St. Catharines. And in fact, most of Upper Canada was surveyed in this way. In most of Upper Canada, this layout of roads preceded urban development so that most of Ontario municipalities now have grid patterns of streets. In cities, many of those concession roads have become the major streets, as I mentioned before, uh, Carleton, Welland, uh, Linwell, Lakeshore, Scott are all the, the main concessions that have sort of survived uh, those early, those early uh, surveying into modern times. So then I found some special terms for surveying, which I liked. I was like a good, a good glossary of terms. So a road allowance is a strip of land for the provision of a public road between lots. Typically, any guess of how wide a road allowance is? I want to say, oh gosh. I would have said one chain, but I'm sure that's not accurate. You are correct. It is one chain, le chain length or 66 feet wide. Of it course, like it's not very wide, though. Sometimes the road allowance doesn't feel wide. Yeah, 66. That's not a big one. It's I mean, that's the original road allowance. Uh, we don't use 66 feet anymore for surveying. So I don't know what they are today. But that was kind of interesting and obvious. Like you, you really only need one tool to be a surveyor or maybe to like a compass and a chain and you're good to go. Baseline. The first concession road in a township was often called the baseline. Front. The first concession road was also frequently called the front. Broken front. Concession along a lakeshore. So I think that sometimes when you're running into, like, if the lakeshore is doing this, as I'm drawing a squiggly line with my hand, then, like, how do you put that, that yeah. concession road along that? So if you're Concession road gets broken though by the lakeshore come dipping in, then, then that's when you have a broken front. Town line, a boundary road or a road between two townships. That's pretty evident. There's tons of town line roads here in Niagara. Our town line road here in St. Catharines runs between St. Catharines and Thorold. Um, and it's very short actually. It turns into St. David's Road at St. David's Road West. So it's, it's just, just a few blocks long our town line road. I think it used to be longer, but then that basically St. David's Road is now our town line road. Given roads, special roads made to avoid natural obstacles that interfere with the grid. So I would say a lot of the roads that go up the escarpment would classify as given roads because they, they probably cross more than a, not a concession, yeah. but more than one lot. And then gore. A gore is a tri triangularly shaped lot. So there you go. So sometimes they would end up with gores and that's what you get. Well, we had the gore down in the middle of St. Catharines off St. Paul Street. There was what was called the gore, which was essentially that huge triangular piece of lot that had the giant flagpole on it for years. Yes. Uh, that they took down. It was kind of close to the corner of Ontario and St. Paul. And uh, in a lot of the old pictures of parades, you see the gore uh, down there. So that's a really great example <laughs> of our triangular shaped lot. And it's called the gore. Isn't that great? That's a great um, so, yeah, that was fun. So from there, I stayed with the urban planning aspects of maps and mapping, and I got lost in the criticisms of the grid system. Mostly that some of the, there's tons of criticisms, obviously, and there's tons of benefits. Um, but mo most of the criticisms are that uh, technically grid systems are more, more expensive, because generally there are more streets to deal with than in a more organically laid out city. Um, not length of street, but just the number of streets. Um, so you just need more services to make a grid system work. So they're technically more expensive. Additionally, the traffic patterns that uh, grid systems create are challenging for social environments. And a lot of efforts, especially since the 1970s, a lot of efforts have been made to break up smaller pieces of grid systems to discourage uh, through traffic. But then tighter street patterns also result in less collisions and pedestrian injuries than in suburban neighborhoods where the streets are much wider, um, which makes it easier to drive faster so that you just, in terms of risk calculation, you end up with more injury. So it's interesting that, you know, we, that sometimes we're trying to break up uh, grid systems, but then sometimes we also encourage really tight grid systems to sort of deal with the traffic flow. Of course, all of these things weren't, weren't built or weren't designed to handle vehicle traffic. 
yeah. or vehicular traffic. So uh, the introduction of the automobile into the grid pattern has really caused a lot of the problems. Basically, we can blame the car for everything. Most of all, it's the grid patterns that are really difficult to reconfigure. So that's the biggest, and that's a problem that we're dealing with here in St. Catharines and every every post-industrial or post-manufacturing city in North America probably has the same problem because when trends, trends change, cities are less able to adapt and keep up. What they end up doing is they end up branching out and they go outside of the grid and they basically start over. So you see that here in St. Catharines in that we're sort of run out of space in the traditional uh, boundaries of St. Catharines and we've started branching out. It's happened very recently with the 4th Avenue neighborhood and where the hospital is, um, but it's also uh, happened in the past in the 1970s with uh, the um, sort of explosion of suburban development in and around the Penn Center. Um, so, and those are all yeah, yeah. super complicated responses to not just the grid system, but just trends in um, the development of Canadian cities. And that reminded me that I have this wonderful book called The Canadian City. <laughs> and it's a collection of essays in urban and social history. Um, and I'll post, a, 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 I'll post that book in the footnotes as well for people who want to dig in. Um, so I dug into some deep urban history uh, in that book. And I looked into how the grid system came to Canada in the first place and why it was preferred. And it's very similar to your, your research into the imperial uh, mapping and the, what was it, the Board of Trade? Yeah. Yeah, the Board, now of, the, Trade. The board of Trade looked to control development in North America and some of these sort of quote unquote new lands. And so your research was pretty, pretty macro and across the whole of North America. My research was extremely similar, but on the macro level. So I looked at some really specific examples. So the French and British imperial influence is obvious in all of these things but there are some early colonial reasons why the grid was adapted over others, mainly to solve the problem of too much space. This is perhaps a good segue to our next topic next time. Our next topic is the uh, fur trade. So this is a good segue to that. But early French towns were founded on private land in some cases, like, the, like a, um, a town founded around uh, Hudson Bay Company Fort. So right. the fort would be established or a trading post would be established and then the town would sort of begin to grow up around that. And we're talking like 1500s, 1600s. And uh, it would either be maybe a private land and a trading post or a military fort where that kind of development would start. At first, the temporary site of Quebec, uh, Quebec City, developed in an informal manner and they were kind of just building yeah. as they went which is pretty cool. So you, we might have ended up with something that looked more like Paris, but by the 1630s, residents had built, built houses and were continuing to build houses. And so according, basically according to their own desires and their own means of each individual person. But the governor started getting annoyed with that. And so after that, after in the 1630s, all buildings quote, hereafter shall be done systematically. And so they introduced, you know, control into that. You can just imagine like somebody building a house in the back of one lot and then somebody else building a house on the back of their lot. And then you've got two houses really close together and then maybe someone else builds it somewhere else and, and so on and so forth. You end up with this really, how do you build streets and bring in well, services? Especially when you were responsible to build the street across your, or to maintain the street across the front or the back of your lot, whatever it was. If your house is in a totally different spot, you might be like, well, I'm not going to pay for that. Not, that doesn't even come to my house. Why yeah. would I bother? Yeah. <laughs> so then just like this system is just like chaos, basically, and it's not doing anybody, and not doing anybody any good. It's all about control in the end. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's a large group, large populations of people trying to be in the same place at the same time. Exactly. And can you imagine like a city, for example, like the Great Toronto Fire, if Toronto wasn't a grid, how could you deal with a fire like that? Just going back to fire insurance plans. Yeah. Like just physically, how could you deal with a con like a huge conflagration about like burning down blocks and blocks if it's more like a city like Paris where the streets are kind of like, you know, yeah. fire, fire doesn't follow a plan. F fire just goes, right? So 
anyway. Well, that's why Paris ended up with this system <laughs> of, uh, of streets that all wheeled out from the center, right? Because uh, they needed regulation for those types of problems where uh, you needed to be able to get around easier and to be able to uh, help with your um, official capacities of, you know, sewers, fire, <laughs> water, all of those Transportation. things. Transportation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, in the late 1700s, uh, as you were saying, after the uh, Seven Years' War, when the British took over uh, the government of North America, um, the British were, were concerned with settling Canada, as the French had not really been as concerned with settling Canada. And they, I guess they actively and this might be this might be in your book as well that you mentioned they actively sort of used a roman system of military towns to establish the task so in very early interior settlements were built around forts right. um and that's that's sense, that's a pretty basic um model for colonialism and town settlement but it just means that places like niagara on the lake are good local examples of uh, a town layout that's based on the location of their fort so first fort mississauga and then and then later fort george so like they're they're not the concessions that were surveyed in the 1700s but their town layout is based on the positioning of where the fort is so the town layout is actually like almost at a 45 degree angle to where the concessions are. So you get nice straight concessions in Niagara Township, but then you get to Niagara and the Lake Town, it's proper, and you've got roads that go this way, basically. So this might be the most- Exactly demolish everything that was already there when they were laying out the survey, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's already things there, people were living there. Exactly. You demolish what is already there because you want your streets to be straight. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So this might be the most obvious thing I've ever said, um, but the layout of a city is directly tied to its history. And I think that's something we should all think about the next time we're stuck at a difficult intersection in St. Catharines. I think you could say that about the entire country. <laughs> Let's take it macro again. Yes, the whole country as well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about you, but I also, I just forget sometimes that, oh yeah, this city is old. And that's why sometimes it's hard to get around. Not yeah. 100%, you know, everybody's out at the same time and therefore causing traffic. You know, there's, there's specific challenges that yeah. we have to deal with as a community because of our history. But then what it comes down to is that people will say that that makes it a much more charming place to be as well. True. Because, you know, when you look at, uh, the best example of this is in the movies when they show suburbia, and they have all of these like square streets, all the houses look very similar and like a brand new, imagine an entire city of just that with nothing else that provides some character to it like uh, windy roads or uh, older houses or older industrial areas that have been uh, made into housing or whatever uh, to make your city a little more varied to provide some charm to it. They've been doing studies for years on suburbanization and the impacts that it has on sense of place. Right. Um, and the, the physiological impacts on you, just like, just as not even to mention the mention, the mental impacts on uh, the impacts on mental health, but the physiological impacts of sub suburbia, um, actually increase stress right. for some reason. You'd think like living in, you know, downtown New York city, uh, would increase stress, but apparently like the, the not having a strong sense of place because you live in basically the same neighborhood that's replicated all across everywhere has, you know, health impacts. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, which I think is why a lot of newer communities are uh, create that uh, character to those newer communities so that they have a character to them, even though they're a um, kind of a planned community, you know. Next time on One Hour in the Past, we'll get into the physiological impacts of suburbanization. I'm just kidding. The next episode is all about the fur trade. Oh, that's going to be great. I'm really excited about that too. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our historical adventures. 
We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com forward slash St. Catherine's Museum or at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. Tune in next time for our rabbit hole research of the fur trade. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. <laughs>